drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Commenting on this passage from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 25. Brothers, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest and sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking." For if they did not escape judgment when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? This is God's word for us. You may be seated. Every Sunday, uh, we gather and open up the Bible as kind of the central facet of our worship service to hear from God, as is a quite appropriate. Uh, so often our goal in doing that is to make sure that our thinking about God aligns with what God has said about himself. In other words, we, we open up the Bible every week to ask, what do we think of God and are we thinking rightly? And that's an important question to ask. However, as important a question as that is, C.S. Lewis challenges us to consider the fact that what we think about God may not be the most important question that we can ask or the most important thing that could be said about us. In his uh, essay, The Weight of Glory, Lewis made this observation, quote, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, it is infinitely more important. So Lewis says, yeah, what you think about God is important, but you want to know what the real issue is? You want the issue that determines your eternal destiny? It's how God thinks of you. And so following C.S. Lewis's lead there, I want to begin this morning by asking a thought-provoking question. What does God think about you? Now, what do you think about him? What does he think about you? What do you think? It's a little bit of an uncomfortable question, isn't it? Uh, is, is God pleased with you? Or is God disappointed in you? When your name comes to his mind, does God get excited? Or does he respond with something more akin to, meh? When your number comes up on God's divine phone, 
and he sees a picture of your face, does it provoke sort of a, a divine fist pump? Yeah, that's my gal, that's my guy. Or when your face comes up on God's phone, does it provoke the cosmic face palm? Oh. How does God think of you? That's a pretty important question. Maybe you think he's at least pretty happy with you because you say you believe in him and you do your best to live a responsible life, um, to care for people the way that, that he probably wants us to care for people. So, Maybe you're pretty sure he's, he's at least fairly okay with you, hopefully pleased. On the other hand, there's a lot of us that would probably, if we're to be honest, we'd be pretty sure God's not super happy with us because you, you know the sin in your own life. Maybe you struggle even to think much of yourself, so you can't imagine how God would think much of you at all. Or maybe you simply don't know. Maybe you believe, like, how could we know? How, we can't know that. I mean, what God thinks of me is, is, is God's business. He, he doesn't necessarily just tell me. How could I possibly know what God thinks of me? I can hope. I can do the best I can and hope that at the end of the day the best is enough, but I, I can't know for sure what God thinks of me. I mean, isn't it presumptuous for us to say definitively what God thinks? How can we presume to know what God thinks of us? Well, friends, whatever your initial response to that question is, it's an important one, and thankfully, it is one that the Bible does not leave us in the dark on. We can know exactly what God thinks of us, and particularly whether or not he is pleased with us. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us exactly how to know that. Hebrews eleven six 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. No matter what else you got going for you, it doesn't matter. We are rebels. We are guilty in God's sight. He is displeased with us, appropriately so, unless we have this thing called faith. Faith is the key. You want God to be pleased with you? The Bible's very clear. Here's how that happens. It's through faith. Faith means banking everything. My, my life, my possessions, my dreams and ambitions, my future, my eternity. Banking all of that on what God says rather than on what I see through my own experience and wisdom. And this has been the constant message of the Bible from cover to cover. The Bible is a story of how sinful and rebellious humanity can enter eternity on good terms with God, knowing that God thinks well of you, as it were that God is pleased. And the most important thing to know when I die is that, is God pleased with me? Does he embrace me as a son or a daughter? Or does he justly reject me as a rebel and a sinner? The Bible is the story of how sinful humanity can enter eternity on good terms with God. And that story revolves around four themes that we've been looking at in this uh, four Sundays running up to Easter. The theme of creation and the promise of redemption and new creation. Uh, the theme that we saw last week of relationship and reconciliation. And this morning we're going to look at the theme of faith. And then lastly, next week on Palm Sunday, we'll look at the core theme of the Messiah, the Savior. Here's the main point for today. We've got one main point. The Bible's consistent message from cover to cover, start to finish, is that faith is the key to pleasing God. 
That's where we're going this morning. The entire Bible from start to finish, faith is the key to pleasing God. Now I saw enough of those connection cards go back there that I have lots of extra time to preach this morning, so we're gonna cover every passage in scripture and we all get out of here about seven, seven o'clock tomorrow night. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Clearly, I can't actually walk through every passage of scripture and show you that. Although, if you have been following along in the Bible Story in 40 Days devotional that's available out in our atrium, and many of you have been engaging in that study, you've already seen how so many of the passages, Old Testament and New Testament, the entire Bible, this issue of faith is right at the heart of what it's trying to communicate. Now this morning, the way I want to demonstrate that this is the message of the Bible from cover to cover is by looking at two passages. We're going to take a long look at an Old Testament passage, Exodus chapter 19, a very important Old Testament passage. We're going to take a much shorter look at a very important New Testament passage in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. And in both cases, we're going to see that the issue of faith is at the heart of what the Bible is trying to get across. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn them to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Exodus is easy to find. It's the second book in the Bible, so just start at the beginning and start turning pages left until you see Exodus. And pretty soon you'll end up at chapter 19. This is such an important passage of Scripture because... This is where God led the Israelites. He's already done the plagues and all that cool Red Sea stuff, and he now takes them to Mount Sinai where he's going to have an up-close and personal encounter with them and enter into a covenant with them, and they are going to become formally his people. It's one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament because this is where the people of God are going to become the people of God and fulfill their purpose in being the people of God. So it's a very important chapter. Unfortunately, it's also a somewhat confusing chapter. Uh, just the way it's narrated and the way it's put together, Moses, the original author of this text, um, points out enough that I think we can follow what's going on, but he doesn't necessarily narrate every detail. Uh, there's a couple of gaps where he jumps from one thing to the next, and we're left to ascertain what happened in the middle, and, and at that point it can become somewhat confusing. And so as a result, there are some different opinions about what's really going on in this chapter. In fact, in our devotional, we looked at Exodus chapter 19, and I've gotten so much feedback on this Bible study that has all been positive. There is one day's readings in which I got a lot of, wait a minute, are you sure that's what that says? I got a lot of questions, and it was on this chapter. Because sometimes when you initially read it, it's a little hard to follow what's going on. So we want to take just a few minutes quickly and walk through the highlights of this chapter to see what's going on and see how faith is at the heart of it. Uh, God brings his people to Mount Sinai. We're going to pick up the narrative in verse um, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, these are our key verses, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God talking to Moses. God here tells us his purpose in bringing the Israelites to Mount Sinai. Here's the goal. He actually lists three things, but it's all one purpose. You can kind of think of it like a triangle. It's a, it's a threefold purpose, that they would be his treasured possession, verse 5, that they would be a kingdom of priests, in verse 6, and a holy nation, in verse 6. All three of those are connected with one another. By treasured possession, um, God, even in this passage, makes it clear that, that he owns everything. I mean, he possesses the whole world. And yet, he says of his people, you're going to be, of all the, the things that I am sovereign over, you're going to be my treasured possession. 
It's like many of you may own uh, lots of jewelry, you have rings or necklaces, but, but many ladies, for example, have uh, jewelry, but there's, there's some pieces of jewelry that are super important to them, and often they're not even the most valuable pieces. Maybe you have a lot of rings and necklaces, but your wedding ring is the one piece of jewelry you would not want to be without because of who gave it to you, because of what it represents. Or perhaps you have a lot of bracelets and watches, but there's that one old, tarnished, simple watch that you inherited from a dearly beloved grandmother who's now passed away. And it's precious to you, not because it's worth anything financially, it's worth a ton to you because of who it came from and what she meant to you. You see, that's the idea of a treasured possession. You got a lot of stuff, but some things matter more than others. God says, I own it all, but you, my people, you're gonna be my treasured special possession because I got a special place for you and a special job for you. That leads to the idea of what their job was. What was gonna make them treasured amongst all other peoples to God? Well, because they were gonna be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests, that's an important phrase. Uh, A priest was someone who was closer to God than everybody else. He would go to God and kind of get God's messages and bring them back to the people. So the priest, by definition, was closer to God than everybody else was. And he would take, you know, the the sacrifices and and the penance of the people back to God on their behalf. It's sort of a go-between. Now, God here is saying to the Israelites, and this is important, we're going to come back to this in just a minute, that the entire kingdom, all of the Israelites, were to be his priests. They were the ones who were going to be closer to God than any other nation on the earth, any other people group in the world, and they were going to therefore communicate God's message to all the rest of humanity so that people could come into relationship with God. How would people in that day and age find out about God? They would go talk to the Israelites. They were the priests. And how were the Israelites going to communicate what God was wanting and what God said through being a holy nation? They were to live differently. In that case, they were, in, in that sense, they were to reflect what God is like so people would know God by looking at them. And so you see how all these are bound up together. They were going to be a holy and different people living in a way that reflected God. That would allow them to serve a priestly function to communicate God's message to the rest of humanity, and therefore they would be God's treasured possession. That's why he brought them to Sinai. Now, that was his plan. How was he going to accomplish this? That was his purpose. What was his plan? How was he going to accomplish this? How was he going to make this people holy? He was going to do it through a close encounter. Through an up-close and personal encounter with the holy and living God that they were to all experience themselves. Because when you experience a close encounter with God, you are never the same. And so he brings them to Mount Sinai to experience him up-close and personal. They were supposed to be right there with Moses. Let me read verses 9 through 13. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits For the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or even to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he will not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now, this is where the narrative starts to get a little bit confusing. Verse 9 makes it clear that they were supposed to be right there with Moses when God spoke so that the people heard the voice of God. 
That was his intention. Everybody is supposed to be right up there, up close and personal. As a matter of fact, I believe it's pretty clear that they were actually supposed to go up onto Mount Sinai with Moses where God had descended down. Part of the reason for believing that is that God had told Moses that that's what he was going to do with the people back in Exodus chapter 3. Let's just take a quick detour, keep a finger or a bookmark in Exodus 19, drop back to Exodus chapter 3. This is before the ten plagues, this is before the Pharaoh, before the Red Sea. Moses is off in the middle of nowhere tending sheep, and he's coincidentally up on Mount Sinai, and he sees the burning bush, and God starts talking to Moses out of the burning bush, and he commissions him. He says, go to the Pharaoh and tell him, set my people free. You're going to be my spokesman. And Moses is like, whoa, I can't go talk to the Pharaoh. I'm a nobody. He's the big king of the, of the world. He's the most powerful guy around. How can I do this? And here's one of the things that God tells his people, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. God said to Moses, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve or worship God on this mountain. God said, I'm, I, when you get the people, I'm going to bring you all back here to Sinai. Now, there's one thing you don't necessarily notice in the English translation because of the way English works. Uh, this was originally written in Hebrew, and Hebrew, like most languages in the world, except ours, has different words for the second person pronoun, whether it's singular or plural. In English, we just say, you. And if I say, hey, you, I could be referring to one person, or I can say, hey, you, referring to the entire group, right? We, don't, we use the same word for both. Here's the interesting thing. Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, there are five yous, and four of them are singular. The last one is Plural. Really, the only way to say that in English would be like, you all, not y'all, because this is not Texas. You all, okay? We're in Oregon, all right? We talk proper. You all, oh boy, I just made some enemies. How many Texans do we have in here? Come on, you guys are killing me. Never mind, I don't want to know. You guys will take me out back with your six shooters and put me down after the service. It'll be over. All right, here we go. So let me take a shot at rereading this with a little bit more clarity, Okay? Exodus 3.12, God said, but I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be the sign for you, Moses, that I have sent you, Moses. When you, Moses, have brought the people out of Egypt, you all shall worship God on this mountain. So it seems pretty clear that God wanted them to come up. Now, of course, they were to stay away for this two-day period, and we're back to Exodus 19. They were to stay away from the mountain for this two-day period of consecration. God says, don't let anybody touch the mountain. You prepare yourselves, and they give them all kinds of things to do during this two-day uh, consecration period, because anytime there's a big event, right, you, you, you shower, and you shave, and you get your hair cut, and you put on your nice clothes. You prepare. Meeting God is a pretty important event, so he gave them two days of preparation. He said, during that two days, nobody's to touch the mountain. And significantly, in verse 12, Exodus 19, verse 12, at the end, he says, um, uh, sorry, in the middle, he says, uh, put limits around the mountain saying, take care not to go up into the mountain. And that's literally what the word means, into, and in context, that means up onto the mountain. Nobody has any problem understanding what that means. But now here's where it gets interesting. In verse 13, God says, on the third day, I'm going to come down, there's going to be smoke, fire, lightning, all kinds of really cool pyrotechnics. You're going to hear a trumpet blast, and then they shall come up what do your Bible say? To the mountain. Now, here's the interesting thing. That word is the exact same word as it was in verse 12. When God says, 
make sure that they um, don't go up onto or into the mountain. Then verse 13, he says, when you get the trumpet blast, they are to all come up onto or into the mountain. Now, the reason that English translators have translated it to the mountain is because it's vague. I mean, it's still accurate, but it's got a wider range of meaning, and frankly, translators are saying, we're not exactly sure what's going on, because does God want him to come up or not? Well, in just a few verses, we'll see this here in just a moment, God is really clear that he doesn't want the people up on the mountain, and if any of them come up on the mountain, he's gonna, they're going to die, just like during the two-day period of consecration. So people get really confused. Were the, were the Israelites supposed to go up onto the mountain or not? And so the translators have said, we're going to take a pass on that one. You figure it out yourself. <laughs> They come up to, which is a legitimate translation of the word, to the mountain. Whether that means onto or just up next to, it's kind of up to you to decide. Well, I think in the context, it's pretty clear what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go up onto the mountain because they were supposed to meet God close. Okay, enough grammatical details. Now let's pull back and see the flow of what's going on here. If I'm right about that, all the Israelites were supposed to go up and experience God up close to serve as a bridge between him and the rest of the peoples of the world. That was God's plan. I'm going to make you a holy people and a kingdom of priests by giving you an up-close and personal encounter with me that will change your life. That's what he wanted to do. That's how he was going to do it. Now, what actually happened? What happened is that their fear killed their faith. Verses 16 to 20. Let me read those. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the peoples in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain and so Moses went up. Okay, what's going on here? This is one of those places where some of the details got left out and we're scratching our heads a little bit to try to figure out what was going on. The narrative is a little hard to follow. Verse 16, the people see this incredible, intimidating display of awesome power. And in verse 19, they hear the cue to come up to the mountain. I believe onto the mountain. The trumpet blast. There it is, just like God said. And they hear God's thunderous voice speaking to Moses just as God had intended back in verse 9. But in verse 20, only Moses is called up to the mountain, not the people. So why? What, what, what just happened? Verses, fortunately, 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 18 to 21, give us a hint. That's the passage we read earlier. Moses gives the people the Ten Commandments at the beginning of chapter 20. And turn your page over to chapter 21, verses 18 to 21. Here, after explaining to them the Ten Commandments, Moses goes back and he narrates a little bit more detail about what just happened when the storm went off and the trumpet blast took place, Okay. Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, so we're back in verse 19 now of the previous chapter. He's taken us back there. When they saw all of this and they heard the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they backed way the heck off. They said, whoa, this is too much for me. Now Moses, and they said to Moses, uh, you go talk to God and we'll listen, but don't let him speak to us lest we die. 
We don't want anything to do with being up close and personal with that God. He's too scary. <laughs> so if you're fool enough to go talk to him, knock yourself out, dude. <laughs> Come back and let us know what he wants and we'll do it. But there's no way we want to be near that intimidating, powerful, holy God. Now Moses pleads with the people in verse 20. He says, them, no, don't, don't, don't fear. At least don't fear so much that you, you back away like this. That was the signal. We're supposed to go up. He says, God did indeed come to test you so that the fear of him may be before you so that you may not sin. In other words, you're supposed to have this earth-shattering, soul-quaking experience of being in the presence of God so that from this day on, when you're tempted to sin, you'll remember with whom it is you have to do. And it will keep you from being a sinner, meaning it will make you a holy people so you can be a kingdom of priests so that you will be God's treasured possession. You're supposed to have this fearful experience with God, so, but don't, he's not going to kill you. Just trust him. Come up. Let the fear of God ground your soul in reality. Come. That's what God wants from us. But what happened? What did they do in verse 21? The people stood far off. So then when God called him, Moses went on up into the mountain by the thick darkness. They were supposed to go close to God, to trust that no matter how frightful and fearful he was, he had their good in mind. They were supposed to obey him. They were supposed to trust him. Do you see the issue of faith? Here's what God told me to do. Come up to the mountain, and here's what everything I know is telling me. That mountain's a scary place. So which impulse am I going to act on? Friends, that's always the question of faith. That's why throughout the study, we've pictured faith as a forked road with two signs. You've got to go one way or the other. You're going to choose to bank everything on what God said or bank everything on what you know, what you believe, and what you've experienced. That's the issue of faith. And it comes up over and over and over again. The people of Israel failed because they let their fear conquer and kill their faith. Interestingly, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of God is the beginning of understanding. In other words, fearing God is the beginning of seeing the world right. But here we also see that the fear of God can not only be the beginning of understanding, it can also be the end of faith. Fearing God is a tricky thing. What is your view of God? For many of us, we either look at God in a way that he's too soft or we look at God in a way that he's too harsh. Where do you fall? Where do you tend to land? How do you see God? For many people, God's, uh, their view of God is a bit too soft, a little too chummy. Me and God, we're like this. God's my homeboy. God's my best friend. Me and God, we just got our thing going. Friends, people die in the presence of God. In Exodus chapter 33, uh, God was going to reveal his glory to Moses, but he said, I can't show you my full glory because no one can see my face and live. He said, Moses, if I actually looked directly at you, you would die. This is Moses we're talking about, but he's still a sinner. You get into God's presence directly as a sinful human being, you die. When Isaiah saw just a vision of God's throne room. It wasn't even a literal photographic picture. It was a vision of God's throne room. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, the vision was so overwhelming that he immediately blurts out uncontrollably in anguish, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. 
in the presence of just a vision of the holiness of God. His sin weighed so heavily upon him, he was just ready to pull his hair out. He says, woe is me, I'm worthless because of my sin in light of the holiness of God. We can be so dismissive of our sin, can't we? Oh, a little back step there. Oh, I'm not perfect here, but I'm a pretty good person. In the presence of a perfectly holy God, our sinfulness is utterly unbearable. And in Ezekiel, when the prophet Ezekiel got a vision of God's throne room in Ezekiel chapter one, he describes it as best he can, and then he says he just absolutely collapsed. His legs gave out from under him. And God even told him, hey, it's okay, stand up. And he couldn't. God had to literally pick him up and put him back on his feet. That's being in the presence of God. And of course, when the apostle John saw a vision of the resurrected Christ in Revelation chapter one, he says he fell down as a man dead. That's the presence of God. God is not, as C.S. Lewis so aptly said, a tame lion. You don't enter the presence of a lion without the hair standing up in the back of your neck. Same is true with God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 says, our God is a consuming fire in his holiness. The fear of the Lord is indeed the beginning of understanding because when we know the one with whom we have to do, the sheer awesome holiness of his presence utterly sandblasts all of the lame excuses we make for our sin right off our bones and leaves us clean and bare before God. It's like an arctic blast of ice water that jolts us awake from the lies of Satan and leaves us standing naked and exposed before utter reality. God is holy and I'm not. God is not a tame lion. On the other hand, many people's view of God is too harsh. Is God only holiness to you? Is he only wrath and just condemnation against sin? The Bible actually tells us that the God of holy wrath is love. It doesn't say he's loving. It says he is love. No contradiction there. Think of the position these Israelites were in. God had created his people and given them untainted goodness and beauty in the Garden of Eden. He had preserved them and grown them in Egypt for 400 years until they were a great nation. He had miraculously delivered them from oppression through the plagues and, and, and the Red Sea crossing. And he had promised them a future good land. I'm going to take you to a good place. And he did all of this when they didn't deserve any of it. These people had ample opportunities to look back from their own not only knowledge of their own history but from their own personal experience and understand that God loves us God is good to us far more so than we deserve Tim Keller points out that the order of events in Exodus 19 is important here God did not say to the Israelites here's my law while you're slaves in Egypt do a good job keeping it if you do good enough I might just break you out of this place and give you a better place to live that's not how the story goes does it God breaks them out of Egypt miraculously, takes them to the mountain, and he says, now, trust me, have faith, and the blessing will come as I take you to the promised land. The order is not obey, and then God will save you, and then you'll have blessing. 
The order, even in the Old Testament, is God saves you. So respond in obedient faith and you will experience blessing. God's grace comes before our obedience from cover to cover in the Bible. This is a good and loving and gracious and benevolent God who gives to his people far more than they could ever deserve. He is not safe, as Lewis put it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but he is good. He is good. The Israelites should have rightly trusted and feared God Uh, Sorry, they should have rightly feared God and yet trusted him when he said, come close to me. It will rock your world, but that's the point. So come close. But instead, they let their fear kill their faith. They refused to trust him and thus they disobeyed him, choosing to stay off the mountain. So God told Moses to come up and he instituted a new order of priests as the chapter concludes, starting with Moses' brother, Aaron. This is a huge disappointment. Remember earlier when we said the Israelites were supposed to become a kingdom of priests? Everybody, all the Israelites together were to serve a priestly function. They were to be close to God. Well, because they didn't want to be close to God, they now have become a kingdom with priests. Not a kingdom of priests. A kingdom with priests. What a letdown. Now a small subset of the Israelites has to be set aside to be the go-betweens between God and the rest of the Israelites. They were supposed to be the ones who were the go-betweens for God and all the rest of humanity. But fear killed their faith, and so they missed out on the fullness of God's blessings. That's why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, which we read earlier, says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, meaning escape punishment, when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This is referring back to Exodus 19, the Israelites. Who was warning them from earth? Well, Moses. We just saw that in Exodus chapter 20. He's saying, don't run away. Come close. But did they listen to him? No way. They refused to obey Moses, who is just simply passing on the commands of God. And as a result, they were judged and condemned. By God for their faithlessness. Now that leads us quickly to a New Testament passage I want to look at briefly. Galatians chapter 3. I invite you to turn your Bibles there, which deals with these same issues the giving of the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. Galatians chapter 3. We've already seen that the key issue in Exodus 19 was this issue of faith. Will God's people trust him or will they rely on themselves, what they see, what they feel, what they fear? And they chose fear over faith. Consequently, Moses gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the priesthood. He gives them the tabernacle. He gives them the laws that so many of us are familiar with. It eventually goes on and becomes laws about their ritual sacrifices and their feast days that they have to keep. It becomes laws about what they can eat and not eat. It becomes laws about everything. And collectively, we refer to all of this as the law of Moses or simply of the law, capital L. Here's all of God's rules that he gave to the ancient Israelites that they had to follow because they would not trust him in faith. So how does all of the rules that God gives us to follow relate to the call to faith? Are we supposed to follow God's rules and that's how we get saved? Or do we trust God in faith and that's how we get saved? And if we trust God in faith and get saved, then what's all that law doing in the Bible? Great question. The Apostle Paul wrote an entire chapter to deal with it, Galatians chapter 3. We're just going to take the time briefly this morning to walk through verses 10 through 18. 
Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. You know what the Bible's saying there? Salvation by works doesn't work. Plain English. That's what the Bible's saying. If you're trying to obey your way into God's good graces by being a good enough boy or a good enough girl, it is not going to work. You are destined to failure. And by the way, that's the Old Testament talking. Because what he quotes there is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 26, which says, if you're going to follow the law, you've got to follow absolutely everything perfectly. And if you don't, you're cursed. Nobody can. It doesn't work. The Old Testament's message is not follow the law and you will be saved. Obey and you will be saved and experience blessing. That's not the law. We can't do it that way. Verse 11 goes on of Galatians 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, quote, the righteous shall live by faith. That's another Old Testament quote and if you've been doing our 40-day devotional, you know where it comes from, don't you? Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 an immensely important verse in the Old Testament where God says to Abraham, he makes him the promise, he makes him the covenant, and Abraham believes God, and the Bible says, and God counted that to Abraham as righteousness. It's a mind-blowing verse of Scripture. It is critically important. Here in this day and age, back in an ancient world of, of following the gods and obeying the gods to get in their good graces, God is saying, no, if you believe me, if you trust in me, I count that as if you had obeyed perfectly. I consider that as if you had followed every rule in the book. The way you get right with me, the way you get ple- to please God, the place of pleasing God, is if you believe him if you trust him. And that's the Old Testament talking. So he starts out by saying, salvation by law doesn't work. The Old Testament actually taught salvation by faith. Now drop down to verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, and this is where we get into the law of Moses, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls to it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Uh, There were covenants back in that ancient time that once it was all signed and sealed and the king's seal was on it, it was law. And if somebody else entered another agreement, the old one still existed. You had to abide by the previous agreement. And so down in verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law, meaning the law of Moses, which came 430 years after the promise to Abraham, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. In other words, a little bit of chronology. When God said to Moses, I count you as righteous because you believed me. He was establishing the way you please God. It is through faith and trusting him. Now, 430 years later, we find Moses at Mount Sinai with the Israelites in Exodus 19. And he gives them all of this law and this covenant that they have to follow. And he says, now here's the question. This one came first. The promise that you will be saved by faith, you will be righteous by faith, came first. The law doesn't nullify or abrogate this. It doesn't supersede it. He says, that's not what God intended. The law was a response to their faithlessness. It was not a change of covenant. The covenant had already been established. And he concludes in verse 18, this particular train of thought. If the inheritance comes by law, the inheritance there is eternal life, by the way. If the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What's the Bible saying? It has to be law or faith. 
It can't be some weird, bizarre mix of both. I can't trust God and faith for my salvation and earn my salvation by being a good person. It does, it's got to be one or the other, but only one of them works. Only one of them works. God established the pattern. You want to be pleased? You want me to be pleased with you? Then trust me. Bank everything in your life on what I have said and done for you. And that's the Old Testament talking. Meaning, the New Testament and the Old Testament say the same thing. It's very common for people when they start reading the Bible, <clears throat> getting a little bit used to what's in it, to feel like, man, the Old Testament is all about law and rules and regulations, and the New Testament is uh, about faith and, and grace and just trusting God. And that's an understandable point of view, because on the surface it kind of looks like that, but in reality that point of view is utterly and completely wrong. It misses the point of what the Old Testament is saying, how it's put together, and what message it's communicating. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the entire Bible, are highlighting faith as the way to get into good standing with God. We see this over and over again. When Adam and Eve committed the very first sin, it was an issue of faith. God said, don't cross this line, it will be bad for you. The serpent comes along and says, hey, trust yourself. If you cross that line, it will actually be good for you. There was the issue of faith. Do we trust God or do we go with what we see? They went with what they saw. And it's been hell on earth ever since. It was a failure of faith. Abraham and Sarah trusting God to keep his promise of a child when they were long past the age of bearing children because there was going to be a descendant and there was going to be a Messiah and God was redeeming the whole world. Is he going to do that or not? Here's what God said he would do. Here's what we know to be impossible. Who are we going to trust? The Israelites choosing whether to enter the promised land after they left Mount Sinai. Are those people too strong for us? We're not warriors. We're not trained fighters. They've got trained soldiers and high defensible walls. We can never beat them. But God said, go in, I will fight for you. Would they risk their lives on what God said or would they trust their own wisdom? Over and over and over again, the Old Testament is bringing up the issue of faith. When God's people trust him, God is pleased. When we trust ourselves, everything falls apart. So as we turn the corner and head for home here, what do we bank on today, now? If the Old Testament and the New Testament are both the message that you've got to trust God, what is it we're trusting? What has God promised us that we are to bank our entire lives and our destinies and our hopes and our dreams upon? And yes, it is the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. Friends, the word faith gets used a lot in our modern society. Even though we're getting less and less religious, people are still very spiritual, and the word faith is still a very popular word, but it's really broad and kind of fuzzy in its meaning out there in the culture. People use it all kinds of different ways. I want to be super clear about how the Bible uses it, because the Bible uses the word faith in a very specific sense. It's not just a general kind of spiritual inclination. What the Bible means when it talks about faith is when I put everything Everything I hold most dear, I bank on Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection in my place. That's it. If I get Jesus and lose every dream I had, I come out ahead. That's faith. Can you live that way? By the grace of God, you can. And that is the call of faith upon our lives. Jesus illustrated this beautifully. I'll close with this. <clears throat> when he told a parable in Luke chapter 18. 
the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men, Jesus says, went up to the, into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a well-schooled religious leader. The other was a tax collector, someone who was despised by God's people in that day as corrupt. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I follow your rules, God. You see, that's what he's saying. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Two very different prayers. Jesus finishes his story. I tell you the truth. This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other man. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see what Jesus is picturing there? He's picturing faith. He's picturing faith. Faith means at the beginning, coming before a holy and righteous God, utterly stripped bare of all my lies and realizing I've got no business being here. I bring nothing to the table. And friend, as long as you're convinced that you're a pretty good person, you've got something to your name and to your credit, you'll never experience the depth of salvation. No matter how often you come to church, no matter how many Bible studies you sign up for, no matter how much money you give to missions, Jesus says it starts with coming utterly broken and understanding you bring nothing to the table. Friends, God is profoundly uninterested in how good you think you are. On the other hand, he is intensely interested in how good you know you're not. When your soul is stripped bare and you know you bring nothing to the table and you beat your breast as this man did and just says, God, I got no business talking to you. Would you please have mercy on me? That's when God starts listening. He says, good. Point one, you're in touch with reality. Now we can talk. And then, I place my faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Savior means that I rely on his sacrifice on the cross to pay for my sins. I'm guilty, but you paid my price and I'm trusting in that. And Lord means submitting my authority, uh, submitting my life to his authority as my rightful king. Jesus, you call the shots. You own me. You're God. This whole life belongs to you. When we have done that, we will enter eternal life. When we have done that, we can die knowing that the most important thing that can be said about us is clear, and the most important question that can be asked about us is answered. Do you please God? What does God think of you? When I've come broken before God and submitted to him as Savior and Lord, the answer is, yeah, he's pleased because he's a God of love. God, we come to you thanking you for the message of faith because it means that every single one of us has a shot. It means that nobody is beyond hope. It means that everybody is in desperate need of grace. Nobody is beyond the need of it. Nobody is so good that we can say, I don't need your charity. 
We desperately need your charity. But nobody is so hopeless that your charity and your love cannot rescue us from the pit of hell. I'd like you to take just a moment when I finish my prayer. We'll just have a few seconds of silence for you to reflect, and then the worship team will start playing. And in that moment of silence, I want to ask you to just silently pray that the Spirit of God would undermine any self-righteousness in your heart and bring you broken before a holy God so that you can experience his love truly. Spirit of God, I pray for a special move on your part in this room right now that you would take many of us who think we're Christians but we're still relying on ourselves or many of us who know we're not Christians but we're relying on ourselves and would you break us of our sin before a holy God and give us the gift of repentance that we might embrace your son as Lord and Savior. Move in our midst right now and give us ears to hear what you say. Take a few moments, reflect silently and then let's sing together.